Well, good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. I feel like in some ways we're kind of uh, limping to the finish here of this Ecclesiastes study as we near uh, the summer. I've had uh, several people ask me, uh, how many more weeks is this, which I hope is not the same as asking, is it over yet? Um, but it, I don't know, maybe it is. It's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a dark, uh, it's a dark book in the sense of uh, Solomon considering life apart from God. It's not as though he's an atheist. He believes in God, but he's looking at life under the sun, what life is like apart from a faith relationship uh, with his creator. And so uh, just a quick refresher. Uh, Let's see, tonight we're going to cover, we're going to look at a section of uh, Ecclesiastes 11. And the next week, uh, which will be our last week before our summer break. So next week we'll look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And then the, the, that's it for, uh, you know, until as we enter into the summer. But then the following week, just want to give you a plug for this if you're, if you're uh, so inclined. On, June, on Wednesday, June 5th, which will be, which will be two weeks from tonight, is, our, is the Brotherhood Celebration, uh, sort of an annual thing we do with uh, Pine Grove Baptist Church. And it's at Pine Grove Baptist Church, which I don't know where it is, but I have been, I've been told that it's only five, seven minutes from here. So anybody, anybody know where that is? Yeah, so some of you know where it is. Yeah, it's not far at all. I mean, I've been told. So um, hopefully you'll come out uh, for that. It's, uh, it's sort of a joint uh, worship celebration with uh, the folks of Capshaw and then the folks of, of Pine Grove uh, Church. And I'll be preaching that night, and then um, some folks from our worship team will be leading worship. And um, it's just a chance for us to unite with another church, um, mostly African-American churches, I understand it, and we're going to unite together, and, and we're going to uh, exalt Christ and, um, and just enjoy the fellowship that we have as believers. So that's, uh, that's two weeks from tonight. But again, next week, if you come here two weeks from tonight, you'll be the only one. Maybe you'll find some other person here, but it'll most, it'll most likely be you. Um, so we're not going to have that again. Uh, you know, Again, next week is our last week of uh, Connect as we enter into the summer. Um, let's review for just a minute. So we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which we've said written by Solomon. And uh, it was written toward the end of Solomon's life. Uh, Solomon was the king who reigned during the glory days of Israel. Uh, a time of financial prosperity, uh, geopolitical prosperity, relational prosperity, um, and some would even argue in some, you know, in some cases, some spiritual prosperity was enjoyed as well. And Solomon, as he gets, you know, he's early in his days, uh, the Lord appears to him and the Lord grants him this tremendous amount of wisdom uh, because that's what Solomon asked for. And along with that, the Lord gives him all these other things that he didn't ask for, uh, fame and wealth and, uh, and strength and so on. And then the Lord says, I want you to stay away from the women of the surrounding, the pagan nations, because they uh, will very likely or could very likely lead you away from me, Yahweh, the true living God, and steal your hearts and divert your attention to worshiping these, these other pagan gods. In fact, gods, not real gods, gods that don't exist, but gods of the sky and earth and and." other uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, false deities. And so, but Solomon doesn't heed the Lord's warning, as you know, and he ends up taking in many, many women and many wives. And what the Lord said, what the Lord warned would happen does in fact happen. Solomon's affections are drawn away. And here at the end of his life, what we have in Ecclesiastes is this is, this is his search for meaning. It's his search for 
happiness. It's a search for purpose in life. And, you know, the idea, the search to be significant is actually something we're wired with. The, the search, the desire, uh, so to speak, to, to do something meaningful actually is part of our DNA, is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And you go back to what's called the cultural mandate or the creation mandate, we're, we're called to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The cultural aspect of that is we're to take what God created and fill out the endless cultural possibilities thereof. And so, so the, the desire to do something significant is actually bound up into the heart of, of God's creatures. But where Solomon turns, though, of course, is to all kinds of other things. And as you know, as we've looked at this book and appreciated uh, Dave's instructions, uh, Dave's teaching last week, um, Solomon looks at, he goes in all kinds of directions looking for meaning, purpose, happiness. He looks, he goes to, you know, pleasure, uh, women, food, gardens, buildings, uh, fame. And what he ends up saying is this stuff, this is all a waste of time. You know, vanity of vanities is the phrase. It's meaningless. It's absolutely worthless. Now, along the way, though, as he's searching for, he's searching for, meaning and purpose and all these things, he does arrive at some conclusions. So he reaches some conclusions as it relates to wisdom. And uh, we've seen this over the first 10 chapters. Here are some of the things that he concluded. One, wisdom is better than folly. So even though the same thing happens to the wise, it also happens to the fool. They both end up dying. You're, You're much better off, he says, actually living wisely, pursuing, seeking wisdom because it spares you of the consequences of foolish decisions and rebellion and so on. So he says wisdom is better than folly. Um, He also concludes that doing something you love is better than doing something you despise. Ecclesiastes 3.13, there's nothing better than to be joyful, do good, and take pleasure in your work. So he says, look, we have to work. God's, you know, again, he references God in this book, and God's made us and made us to work. We have to work, but it's much better to, to love what you do, to enjoy what you do, to take delight in what you do. Now, we're going to see some real practical stuff here uh, tonight as well. Um, another conclusion that he arrives at is that peace is better than conflict. Ecclesiastes 4, 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil so he says, look, here's one of the things that I, as I've been trying to find wisdom and meaning and purpose and, and uh, the whole reason we exist, these are some of the things that I've concluded, that peace is better than conflict. Of course, we know this, don't we? I mean, if you've been <clears throat> in conflict, you realize it's much better to be at peace. It's much better to be, to enjoy peace. So peace is better than conflict, one of his conclusions. Another one is that contentment is better than longing. So it's better to... It's better to learn to actually delight in what you have. This is a much better place to be than constantly longing for something you don't have. And longing is a very strong desire, isn't it? In fact, uh, I think it was Ronald Rollheiser who wrote, um, longing is much stronger than satisfaction. In other words, if, you, if you've ever really wanted something, you know, you, you really wanted something badly, when you finally get that something, you know, you realize it's really not, all that it was cracked up to be. You know, I've, I've wanted this so long, right? And then I realize it's not, it's not really cracked up to be. It's not as great as it's cracked up to be. I've, um, we, have, we now have um, five drivers in our home, and uh, 
and everybody's working uh, for the most part, and, except for my youngest one. And so we have three cars and five drivers. And so for the longest time, I really wanted to get a Jeep. You know, I'm just really. And every time I drive my wife crazy, every time we drive around, I'd, I'd say, there's a Jeep over there. She, Why are you pointing out every Jeep in creation? Like, I see it, too. You don't need to let me know every time you see a Jeep. But, I, but finally, uh, my brother-in-law knows this guy, which sounds really, that sounds kind of dark. And, but this is actually, this is all in the up and up. He knows a guy who repair his own, has his own body shop and fixes up. And so he came across this Jeep that had been kind of wrecked and had some, and he said he would give it to me for this great price, and then it takes him about a month and a half to fix it up. And so I went ahead and, you know, pulled the trigger on it, but it's been four weeks now, and I just, I'm dying to get my Jeep, you know, but I know as soon as I get it, it's going to be like, okay, I drive it once. And so longing is stronger than desire. And, and, and uh, Solomon realizes one of his conclusions is that contentment is better than longing. Another one is friendship is better than loneliness. Um, another conclusion, you know, two are better than one, you may recall from the Ecclesiastes. Another one is hard work is better than laziness. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Uh, another one, uh, Ecclesiastes 10, calmness is better than anger. He says, because calmness will diffuse a situation, anger only ignites a situation. So again, He's on this search for meaning and purpose. Why do we exist? It all seems like a waste of time. It all seems like meaninglessness. And these are some of the things that, we, that he uncovers, some of these conclusions. Um, being alive is better than being dead. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.4, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Uh, dogs in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture were more of a nuisance. If you go to some places in Europe and, um, you know, there are some countries where you go that Nobody would ever think about bringing a dog into their house, right? Dogs are still, I've been to Greece, you know, a few times, and, and you go to Greece, and, and people don't bring dogs in their home. Dogs are what roam around the streets, and they eat trash, and they eat, you know. And, and so in the ancient Near Eastern culture, dogs were not, nobody, nobody would ever, like, you know, we had a neighbor in Ohio, that this lady who would, you know, shower with her dog. Nobody would ever do that in ancient, in ancient Israel. It would have absolutely been absurd. It would have been laughing stock of the community. They... But what he's saying is even a dog which is not cherished, not valued, a living dog is better than a dead lion because a, because a living dog still has hope. So these are some of the conclusions that he arrives at. And now he's kind of done with the kind of the overanalyzing. He's done with the sort of uber-calculating. And now he's going to make some observations from nature. Tonight I want to point out four of those. And they're actually, they're actually observations that are intensely relevant for us as believers in this, this the new age. So four kingdom lessons from the laws of nature. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11. Let me read verses 1 through 4, and you'll, you'll see it behind me as well. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. So verse 1 begins with this kind of a, a couple of odd commands. The first one is, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now the Bible asks us to do some you know, some unusual things, some paradoxical things, if you will. 
uh, lose your life in order to find it. Give your life and you'll, you'll, you'll you know, receive more. Give and you'll receive more. Um, hate your family for my, for my sake, Jesus says. In other words, I must be preeminent. Lots of hard things, but this is a weird thing. Cast your bread upon the water. The immediate, immediate image that comes to my mind is, um, you know, you go to the beach and the waves come in, you take a loaf of bread, you throw it into the water. That's what it sounds like he's saying, right? And, and it's going to come back to you. But if, that ever, if you ever did that, and by some stretch you actually got your bread back, it'd be kind of gross, wouldn't it? It'd be soggy, ruined. What are you going to do with it? You can't eat it. You can't bake it. So what, what, what's he saying there? What is he, what's the point? Um, well, Solomon has something different in, in, in mind. This is not, again, you throw a loaf of bread into the water. It won't last until it's gone. Um, you get it back, and it's, it's kind of like soggy bread. Nobody wants to eat soggy bread, which is why I don't eat meatloaf, by the way. Um, but Solomon has something, something different in mind here. He's speaking, unless somebody's made meatloaf for me, it's in the back. You know, you're going to drop it off tonight. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, he's speaking metaphorically as a way to encourage calculated risks. In Solomon's day, international trade or business was done by the sea, right? There were no airplanes in Solomon's day. And so an industrious person would send his or her product out to sea, and there were no tracking devices, there was no GPS, there was no way to make sure that your product, your, what you were sending out, arrived at the destination. And so there was an element of risk involved, but this is what an industrious person would do. He would send his or her, his or her product out to sea and then wait for the ships to return with, you know, what, with the fine goods from foreign lands, as it were. And to find it after many days was to receive the reward for one's investment. But again, this is risky business because once it's out there on the ship, you have no way to, to control it. Sometimes you got something in return for your investment, and sometimes what you sent out and hoped to receive something back, it only disappeared. Sometimes ships were long delayed in their return, and profit was a foregone conclusion, or at least it seemed like it would never work, rather. So there was risk involved, um, but the reward was worth the risk. And so it's the same way with our investments, particularly our spiritual investments. This is what Solomon is getting at here, and especially our divine author. There's a risk in following Christ. There's risk involved. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 10. There's risk involved in sharing our faith. There's nothing that will put a damper on an evening more, especially a family gathering, than bringing up Jesus if you're around unbelieving family members. I've done this before, and probably at the wrong times, I'm sure, but it, around unbelieving family over Christmas, and it's just, you know, the, just the best way to clear a room, right? Everybody all of a sudden has to use a restroom or they're hungry or whatever. So you, you bring these things up. There's a risk involved in sharing your faith. There's a risk involved in talking about Jesus with your neighbor. Um, and we don't know what God's going to do with those conversations. We don't know what God is up to behind the scenes. There's a church in uh, Jackson, Mississippi called First Presbyterian where they're on fire about mission. And, and over the last 15 or 18 years, they've sent nearly 40 families from their church to cross-cultural mission. I mean, just unbelievable. Um, they support over 200 missionaries, and these are real partnerships, not just kind of sending a check. Well, one of the elders of that church uh, heard him tell the story once of how he was in Eastern Europe. He was in Ukraine on an evangelism trip, and he was sharing the gospel door-to-door -door and trying to help this new church plant, you know, sort of meet people. And, um, you know, just felt like it was an absolute waste of time. I mean, you know, humanly speaking, didn't see any fruit. He was really frustrated. 
he was really bothered by the fact that, you know, no, you know, he had a couple of conversations, but it really didn't seem like it really he got anywhere with anybody. And so he was kind of reflecting on that and, you know, just decided to to give it to the Lord. And one day, uh, this elder, you know, he made this guy elder at the church made multiple trips. And so a few years later, even though it was kind of frustrated and thought, you know, should I go back? Are we really accomplishing anything? The church plant was growing by God's grace and people were coming to faith. One day on a return trip, the same elder went out with friends, um, and he's out with friends in an area that he'd been before sharing the gospel, and somebody came up to him and, and asked uh, him if, if he would take a group picture. So there were four other folks standing there. And so the elder, the elder of the church took the picture of these guys and, and you know, handed the camera back, and the guy, one of the guys in the group said, uh, hey, you probably don't remember me, but four years ago, you came to my apartment and shared the good news of Jesus Christ, how he died for sinners like me. And he said, I prayed a prayer. I prayed the prayer, uh, but I was just going through the motions to please uh, my mother who wanted me to turn my life around. I was in a bad condition for about two years after that, completely lost hope. I was drugging and drinking, intending to kill myself. But in God's mercy, I remembered what you told me four years ago that Christ died for sinners, and his blood was the payment for my sins. And he said, I prayed again, and I cried out to God for deliverance, and I put my faith in Jesus, and God answered. I've been delivered. You, and he said to the man, he said, you may wonder sometimes if you're really doing anything, you know, going around sharing Christ in this foreign country. But he said, for me, God used you to save my life and my soul. And so we don't know what God's doing. You know, we're, well, a lot of times we're just, you know, to use the farming metaphor, we're just sort of getting the boulders out of the way, you know. We're stirring up. We're, we're tilling the ground. We're casting the seed. We don't know what's, what God's going to do. God may do something that we never expected. It may be a year, five years, ten years. And so, you know, the, the part of this is, is, you know, taking risks. And here's our, well, I'm not there yet. Um, let me just share some of the ways that we take risks here. There's a risk in sharing our faith, right? You could be you could be ostracized, you could be rejected. There's a risk in planting a church. What if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't take? What if people don't show up? There's a risk in giving sacrificially to kingdom work. There's a risk in, in, in investing in a new area of ministry. Uh, the preacher is telling us to take risks. Try something new for the kingdom. But although Solomon instructs us to take risks, he doesn't want us to be foolish, which prompts him to say this in verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know what not what disaster may happen on the earth. In other words, diversify. Try different things. Invest in different people. Engage different people. Extend beyond your comfort zone as a way to build relationships, valuing people as image bearers of God and praying that God would give you an opportunity to share your faith. Um, the numerical sequence that we see in the Bible, you know, you've seen this a lot in the Proverbs and, and also in, in Ecclesiastes, seven or eight, you know, four, yea, even five. It's a way often of, of expressing an indefinite number. In other words, keep exploring ways to advance God's kingdom at work, in the neighborhood, school, gym, whatever. So here's the first lesson from nature. Invest widely in kingdom ventures because you do not know how or where God will give the increase. 
we have these conversations, and I've had this happen before. I've talked to someone, especially when I was really working in college ministries, talked to groups and or even individuals and really thought, this happened to me about maybe about a year and a half ago. Uh, this guy, uh, Brad Condrashow was his name, and I remember having these conversations with him, and, and I just didn't really feel like I was getting anywhere. Then all of a sudden, he hits me up, hits me up with a Facebook request. This is like, so this ministry was like 2003, so here we are 15, 16 years later, and, uh, and he's sharing some of the ways that, you know, things I said actually resonated with him. We don't know what God is going to do, and so we, we invest widely in, in kingdom ventures. We're, we're engaging people uh, because we don't know what God will do or how he will bring the increase. Now look at verse 3 again, or just listen to it here. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. So, you know, the, the I guess, weather here in, uh, in North Alabama, you know, it's, it fluctuates, right? It varies. Uh, it can be sunny for one minute, and then it, you see a cloud coming, and there's a dark cloud, and it rains. Um, there are times when you see dark clouds, and it doesn't rain. You don't, you know, it's, it can be a little volatile. Um, we've, we've lived in several different major cities outside of Chicago where the weather can change, you know, uh, in an instant. It can be 70 degrees and sunny, and then 20 minutes later, uh, we lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where it can snow in September. It can snow in May. Um, you know, in Charlotte, North Carolina, we lived there when we first got married where it can get so humid that you can barely walk outside, you know, without just being soaked with sweat. Um, and here we know, again, we know what it means to have rain sneak up on us. We know what it means to have a dark cloud uh, the point here is not to make a meteorological truth. What the preacher is telling us is there are plenty of things that just happen in life that we can't control, nor can we foresee. They're inevitable. If a cloud is full of rain, it's probably going to rain. And if the clouds are really full of rain, you may get five or six straight days of rain that will call flood, cause flooding and mudslides and so on. That's just the way that it is with nature. And then he goes on to say, if a tree falls in a forest, it's going to lie in the exact same place that it fell. That's how things work. The tree could fall to the north, to the south, to the east, or the west. It really doesn't matter. The point is, it's not going to get up, right? It's going to, it's going to lie right there. It's going to lay right there where it is. A fallen tree will not move unless someone moves it. There's no exceptions to this. This is a law of nature. Again, and here's the lesson I think that's helpful for us as it relates to kingdom activity. We cannot change what's been done, but we can adjust for the future. There was a, the first church that I served at, we, we did a Monday night and a Tuesday night study on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and, and we got to this verse, uh, the tree has fallen in Ecclesiastes 11, and it, it kind of became a sort of pastoral mantra something would, would go poorly, we couldn't change it, we'd just say, well, and it, it was what we'd say to each other, in other words, okay, it's time to move on. That didn't go the way that we wanted. The tree has fallen, okay? What are you going to do? Uh, we wish this, this would have been more fruitful, more productive. The tree has fallen. Uh, now, now, you can say if someone, uh, you, you know, you're, someone you know or love, they're having a hard time moving past something, um, you know, you can, you can say, look, the tree has fallen. In other words, you can't change what's been done. You can only adjust for the future, trusting in God's sovereignty. And so, you know, as this relates to sort of the kingdom, 
if you're, if you're serving Christ, you can prepare for an adventure. Jesus says in Matthew 10 to his, his followers, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, right? And then he says, all men will hate you because of me. I mean, not, not, every, not every single individual person hated the disciples. Some actually welcomed them into their homes. But he's saying people from all walks of life, people from all uh, rungs of uh, society, as it were, you're going to be hated, even by your own family. Brother will, will turn over father to death and so on. And so you can expect an adventure if you're following Christ. You can expect to suffer. Not only that, we live in a fallen world, which means that we can expect just because we live in a sin-cursed world to deal with heartbreak and disappointments. People we love are going to get sick. Janine and I ran to Burger King right before we, we came over here, and we got a text from a, a very dear friend, and uh, a, a couple that we know and love. They're in their early 80s, and just some of my, my favorite two people in the world. Um, and she, the woman, has lung cancer and is in tremendous pain, and, and first that we'd heard about it, but she may not live very long. This is you know, you, you, we live in a broken world, a sin-cursed world, so we're going to endure suffering. People have accidents. Uh, people get in fights and so on. These things are inevitable, but we can't live in the past. We can't continue to ask, why did this happen? Why did, in other words, why did the tree fall to the east? It doesn't matter. That's where it is. Why did this happen to me? Why did I have to go through this? Why did I suffer? It's pointless after a while to keep asking these things. Sometimes we simply have to say, the tree has fallen. I can't change it. It's time for me to move on. One uh, scholar, Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, writes this, the clouds which follow their own laws and times, not ours, and the fallen tree which has consulted no one's convenience may start us thinking of maybes and might-have-beens but our business is to grapple with what actually is and what lies within reach. doesn't mean that we don't grieve when we suffer. doesn't mean that we don't grieve when we lose people we love. doesn't mean we don't grieve when we go through hardship. Of course not. Grieving is a natural part of being human. You, if you grieve because you've lost someone, if you grieve because you've had a terrible tragedy, um, you're no less uh, faithful, no less spiritual. This is a part of being human. If you don't grieve when you go through terrible things, then maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's, a, there's some unhealth there. So it's not, I'm not saying we shouldn't grieve. Of course we should. And of course, yeah, we believe God is sovereign, that nothing happens outside of his design. We believe, as he's promised, promised us in Romans 8, that, that all these things work out for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose. But that doesn't mean that we just simply grin and bear it. It doesn't mean that, that, that we don't, dialogue with God about it. The Bible gives us permission, in fact, the Psalms in particular, to voice our concerns to the Almighty. You ever read the language of a psalm and been uncomfortable? I have. As I read what David says to God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Will you turn against me forever? And then in the, in the Hebrew imperative, Hear me, come to my aid. It's almost making demands of God. There's, and yet we read the Psalms and we see, we, we voice our concerns to the Almighty. We cry out in despair to a God who hears us and loves us. And we were on the way uh, for lunch on Sunday afternoon after, after church and 
And my, my 13-year-old daughter, who, by God's grace, I mean, she just has this great, a very inquisitive mind and, and a theological understanding. And she said, Daddy, if, we, if God is sovereign, I mean, she just sits over in the service and listens and takes notes. She said, if God is sovereign, then why do we pray? Shouldn't we just say, God, do your will? I said, well, there's tension there. Yeah, we pray. We're called to pray according to God's will, right? But at the same time, we say, God, please hear me. This is what I'm asking for you to do. This is what I'm, I'm pleading with you to do. And so just because, the, you know, things happen and God is sovereign doesn't mean that we don't cry out to God with these things. And the Psalms really capture the full range of spiritual moods, the, heart, the heartbreak of unfulfilled expectations, the joy of victory over sin, the anger against unrighteousness that prevails, the sorrow over repeated sin, the brokenness of repentance, Psalm 51. And David, you know, David, remember David just says, my bones ache. They groan within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. The frustration with God's apparent slowness captured by the Psalms. We need to be honest with God. I remember Speaking of working with college students, I was, which was such an energizing thing for me because of the questions, and I was doing a, a, a study one time on the history of the Reformation, and I just got so many great questions and, and so many good stuff, and we would also sometimes sing a couple of, of ancient hymns, and one time we did a discussion, and we, we sang uh, this, this hymn, How Firm a Foundation, right? You, you're probably familiar with that one. And there's a line in there that says, what more can he say to you uh, than he hath said to you who, who for refuge to Jesus has, hath fled? And this one young lady, probably 20 years old, a new believer, she was really, she was agitated by that. She stopped saying it. She came to me afterwards. She said, what more can he say to us? Are you kidding me? I've got all kinds of questions. I've got a lot of questions, and I'm not getting a lot of answers. But there, was, but there was some real purity in, in her sort of frustration. Like, no, there, there's still a lot of things that I don't know, that I want to know, that I don't feel like God has, has answered. And that's, you know, that's a natural response. God wants us to bring those questions to him. Uh, but in the end, we have to settle with this answer. Why? Because he loves me. You know, I, I saw a meme this week, uh, the other day. It said, Jesus loves me, this I know. His whole life tells me so. And I thought that was really beautiful. I mean, you, how do we know? We don't know what God's doing. As I said on Sunday, we don't know the, the micro reasons, the small picture reasons, but we know the macro reasons because he loves us and he is forming us into the image of his son and he is keeping us unto himself and so on. So we may not understand everything that's going on, but we, we, leave the, we trust him and leave the past behind. And then we make the necessary adjustments in humility, moving forward by God's grace. Uh, Augustine in the fourth century said, said it this way, trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to his love, and the future to his providence. So we say, I don't know, I can't make sense of everything that's happened, but I know that God loves me, and I know he's working things out for my good and his glory, and I'm going to trust the future to him. All right, now look at, uh, look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, 
and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if we just sit around watching the wind, waiting for it to stop, we'll never do anything for him. Because the wind is going to keep on blowing and changing directions, and we can't determine how it's going to go. I've never been at a church, by the way. We have, I guess we have like two meteorologists here that are working on PhDs in meteorology. I mean, if anybody, can, if anybody would have a chance, right, at saying the wind's going to go this way tomorrow, that way, it would be, it would be these folks. But nobody knows. We don't know what, what's going to happen. We, don't, we, can, we can't predict the way the wind blows. And what Solomon is saying is if you sit around watching the wind, you'll never do anything. There will always be clouds that form, and some will produce rain and some won't. But here's the, the point. Here's the third point from the laws of nature. Waiting for the, quote, perfect conditions will prevent us from bearing gospel fruit. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Uh, the gospel is the announcement. It's not what God tells us to do. That's law. It's what God has done for us in Christ. It's the announcement that God is reconciling the whole world to himself through the person and work of his son. He's making all things right. Every, in a thousand ways, a million ways, everything that's broken, everything that's faulty, everything that's been tainted by sin, God is going to make whole. This is the whole concept of shalom, that Hebrew word that means wholeness or healing or peace. And the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, is actually the fuel that moves us, that motivates us, that stirs us. It is our motivating force. If we're sitting around waiting for the perfect conditions, now I'm not saying we do things haphazardly. I'm not saying we do things recklessly. You know, we have neighbors on one side that just moved in about three weeks ago, new brand new house, new construction. I'm not going to go over. We've, we've talked to them twice now. I'm not going to go over there, and the first time I meet them, ask them where they're, if they know where they're going to go when they die, right? That wouldn't be loving. That, that, wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be the way to build a relationship. Um, but, I'm, but neither, I hope, do I have to wait for the absolute perfect condition, everything to be right for me to actually talk to them about spiritual things. If, we, if we're waiting for the perfect conditions, if we're always watching the wind, we will never sow. He who regards the clouds sitting around. And th th again, this is all sort of, at, this was an agrarian society where rain meant so much and they were dependent on it. And, and what he's saying is if you, if you sit out there and you're just sort of looking, is it going to rain? Maybe it won't rain. If I think it's going to rain, I'm going to do some work. So you're sitting around waiting for the clouds. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to make any progress. What God has done for us must be what compels us to do for him, so to speak. And not as a way to get something, not as a way to twist God's arm, not as a way to get God's forgiveness, but as a testimony that we have, that we get, we understand what he's already done for us. Sometimes people won't do anything, though, for the kingdom, again, until they're waiting for the absolute perfect time, the right time in their minds. And, giving us, and by giving us this example of a farmer who refuses to work until the perfect weather conditions, Solomon gives us a very practical warning. Don't waste your life waiting for the perfect time. Serve the kingdom right now where you are. As Jesus' disciple Peter would later say 
in a bit of sort of poetic language as well. Bloom where you're planted. Take advantage of where you are. Rather than watching the wind and the clouds, imagining all the difficulties that may come our way and waiting for better circumstances, now is the time to act in a kingdom way. So what are some things? Well, let me just give you a list of things you might consider that I consider myself as in this prep. Reconcile that relationship that's been strained for months or years. Why wait for the perfect time? Why watch the clouds? Reconcile that relationship. Join a small group where you can encourage others and be, in, be encouraged. Why wait until everything lines up? Step up and lead in a ministry. Or if you're not called to lead, ask someone that you respect to pray for you, to disciple you, to invest in you. Start giving to the church, right? Set aside, and I'm realizing in many respects I'm preaching the choir on these things, so to speak. I know that this is, you know, this is a faithful group, and, but I think these are helpful things. As you know, Solomon says, the farmer who's sitting around waiting for the perfect conditions is never getting anything done. And I think I know I can wait at times and delay and equivocate and, and, and procrastinate thinking there's, gotta, there's gonna be a better time. Pursue the dream that you believe God has given you in your life. Start a friendship with a neighbor. Pray that God would use it to bring that neighbor to himself. I'm inspired by my friend, Pastor Chris, here, in the way that he engages his neighbors. You know, he, he, he he's, talks to them, goes outside in the back in his underwear to get their attention, whatever it takes. No, he never said that. I don't know, maybe he does. Whatever it is, you know, but, but he's, he's engaging his neighbors. And he can already talk about it after having been in that neighbor just a short time, you know, some of, his, uh, some of those neighbors. And, and I know, uh, you know, Pastor Adam and Sarah are, are fantastic at this. We, 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 it's rather the, the point is, rather than waiting, you know, step out in faith. And not necessarily in faith that what you do will succeed the way you want it to, but in faith that God will take what you offer, what you do, and use it in some way for his glory. All right, let's look at these last two verses, verses 5 and 6. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at the evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Here are two verses that remind us, again, in a very poetic way of the mysteries of life that we must accept if we are to do anything productive for the kingdom. We have to learn, and this has been, and I'll be honest with you, this has been a a difficult thing for me. The way that I'm wired, um, you know, I've got got some engineer in me, which means I want to get it figured out. Is that fair, Dusty? Yeah, okay. Uh, I want to get it figured out. I've struggled. I struggle sometimes with dissonance, with mystery. Um, but if you're going to be, if we're going to be faithful followers of Christ, there are plenty of things where we have to be able to say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can't make sense of that. I had a professor, uh, in seminary, Dr. Ron Hawkins, who, um, he was at, he was the number two guy for, uh, Jerry Falwell for a long time. And then he left to become a lead pastor somewhere. And I don't know, I forget what we were studying, but this, this was like, um, some sort of leadership class. And he said, kind of out of the blue in front of the whole class, he said, John, 
um, he said, I think you're really going to struggle with dissonance. I said, what, what do you mean by that? He didn't even know me very well. But um, he said, you know, you like to have it all outlined and buttoned up and so on. And, and it just doesn't work that way. And uh, so I immediately switched classes and uh, petitioned for him to get fired. But um, no, I really did not. But I learned from that because I, what I realized was, yeah, I, I, like to have, I like to have answers. But so much of Ecclesiastes is actually calling us to embrace mystery. Uh, we don't know, verse 5, we don't know how God infuses the spirit into the human body at conception while inside its mother's womb. This is a miracle beyond human comprehension. And anyone who's ever been around a lady who's pregnant knows there's something amazing about the fact that there's a, there's a, there's a living person, there's a whole person, a living person in, inside of another person moving and, and changing positions and kicking at times. And it's just this incredible thing. And now we have more scientific and medical data, of course, that Solomon did, but it still didn't diminish the sense of wonder. Philip Reich in, uh, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says, who can possibly explain how the life of a soul animates flesh and bone? Well, how are we going to put that in an outline? It doesn't work. This is a work of God that transcends our understanding, and Solomon uses that mystery of the child in her mother's womb as a microcosmic example of, of the breadth and scope and wonders of God. So many things are beyond human comprehension. And again, here he highlights the mystery of, of creation and the providence of God. God doesn't, God doesn't inform us the whys and the hows of all his plans and purposes, but he does constantly reassure us that he's in control and he's a loving God, that he cares for his creation. He's working things out toward a wise. So what does that do for you? Well, here's the final of our four lessons from the example of law or nature. Uncertainty should motivate us to action instead of paralyze us. There's These great mysteries should call us to be active. In the morning, sow your seed, verse 6, and at the evening time, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Why? Because even though we don't know what God is doing, we know that he's, we can trust in what he's doing, even if it doesn't make sense to us. You never know, Solomon says, how God may use your efforts. And I see this all the time in ministry. There are times when, you know, I spend the most amount of time in, in, in sermon prep and wrestling with original languages and, and, and literally praying on my knees before God in my office, asking God to do a work. And then when I preach it, I feel like I've really delivered, you know, one of my better sermons. And I feel like I've, I've explained it well and I've communicated it well. And it's nothing. Crickets. You know, nothing. And there are times when I get up and I stumble over my words and I haven't put the adequate amount of prayer into it. And I haven't really dealt with the original languages in earnest. And I preach, and God just does something that I never would expect. And people say, that really spoke to me, or the Holy Spirit did this, or I appreciate it. We don't know. We don't know what God's going to do. We don't know what God's going to do with our efforts, even with our paltry efforts. Sometimes you, people use uncertainty as an excuse not to do anything. It's the, it's the, the plague by the what-ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if I disappoint people? What if I'm not clear? What if I confuse people? 
What if I make someone upset? Of course, we have a tendency to over-spiritualize things, too, as Christians. So we'll say, well, I've heard people say this to me. I don't want to make that decision. I want God to make it. Okay. What, is it, like, how does, what does that actually look like, though? This text, though, teaches us something entirely different. We plan, we use wisdom, but we must be active. Even if we're not sure what we're doing will be successful, God knows. So we work hard, we pray diligently and earnestly, persistently, and then we leave the results to him. And I can tell you, and even, even the churches that I've been in, I've been in churches where we've seen incredible numerical growth. We've gone to two services, three services, whatever it is. And I've, seen, I've, I've been in churches where we, the elders, are doing the same thing. We're not doing anything differently. And we've seen not so much numerical growth, but we've seen marriages restored. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen, and I've been in churches where we've been doing the same thing, doing, doing it faithfully by all accounts, by God's grace, humbly before him. And because of a disciplined case or because of something else, we've seen people leave. We just have to, we have to, you know, the, the thing is, we do humbly and faithfully what, we, what God calls us to do, then we leave the results to him. And what is the most important work that we can, doing, can be doing? It's sowing the seed of gospel fruit. So let me, I'll close with this uh, illustration. And I, I can't remember if I've shared this before, but if I have, you'll, uh, you'll have heard it twice. Um, Luke Short, who was an American uh, immigrant who settled in Virginia as a farmer, uh, was a man who came to faith under, under the preaching of the great Puritan John Flavel. And what makes the story so amazing is that Mr. Short, Luke Short, became a follower of Jesus at the age of 100. He took a break from farming one afternoon. He was sitting under a tree in Virginia. This is in the late uh, 1600s. When he was thinking back on a sermon that he heard by John Flavel in 1 Corinthians 16.22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. And he's sitting under that tree, and for some reason, of course, he doesn't know humanly speaking. Like, why, why would he be thinking about this sermon? He starts thinking about this sermon. And at that moment, he, he turned, put his faith in Jesus Christ, asked God to forgive his sins. He trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what's amazing about that is that he ended up living six, 16 more years. So he died at uh, 116. And his tombstone uh, read like this, Here lies a babe in grace who died according to nature, aged 116. But what's so amazing about that is that sermon that John Flav- or that uh, Luke Short was thinking about when he was 100 is a sermon that he heard by John Flavel when he was 15 years old. 85 years. I mean, he hadn't even thought about this for 85 years. 85 years. He's 100 years old. He thinks about a sermon he heard 85 years ago when he was 15 years old, and he realizes, you know what that Puritan, what that guy said was actually true. I am a broken person. I am a sinful person, and I actually need a Savior. And so, now, if you, if you would have asked John Flavel, who I think was dead by that point, if you would have asked him, like, you know, as he was near the end of his life, you know, would you ever imagine that somebody would reflect back on a sermon you preached, you know, 85 years ago and turn in faith to Christ? I'm sure he probably would have said, I, I can't even imagine that. The whole point being, you know, this is, again, next week we'll wrap this study up with looking at uh, Ecclesiastes 12. But there's this, there are these analogies related to nature that, that are meant to cause us to embrace mystery while, it's, while at the same time stirring within us a sense of urgency to do kingdom work, all the while 
depending on the sovereignty of God. We don't know what God is doing, but He does. We don't know God's timing, but we can trust Him in that. We, we can't sit around waiting for the perfect conditions, the clouds to pass, the winds to change direction, to do something. We trust in His providence. We move forward. When we fail, we turn to Him again and again in repentance. And if He, see, if he lets us see the results of what we're doing, Praise God, to him be the glory. If he doesn't, to him still be the glory. Let's pray.